How was the word of God heard by the people when it was first spoken? The time, the place, the political landscape, the struggles. And how does the word of God apply to this time, this place, this political landscape, our struggles? This is Michael Leasley in Context. Understand God's word and apply it to your life. In Context. We have the privilege today on the broadcast to have my dear friend, Robert Schwartzwalder. Rob, when did we actually, we met, of course, at the Emanuel Bible Church in Northern Virginia, but do you remember what year it was? I think I do. I think it was in about 1998. I was thinking of becoming a pastor, and I asked you out to lunch and asked for your counsel, which was excellent. And that's, I think, when our friendship began. You have been on the Hill for many, many years. You worked for members of Congress, Department of Health and Human Services, of Memory Serves, a stint with the Family Research Council for many years. And now you've been at Regent University for, what, three years? Four years. Four years, and about to finish your PhD, which I'm very proud of you for doing that last little paper. Yeah, that's right. Well, I've, I've learned a lot, and it's been a great experience. It's I'm attending the University of Aberdeen in Scotland, and I've learned so much. I've got great advisors, mentors, and uh, after three, four years, I'm very, very glad to see the end in sight at the same time. <laughs> Will you walk? I am hoping to. Good. Interestingly, the patron of the University of Aberdeen is the wife of the future king, the Prince of Wales. I think she her title is the Duchess of Cornwall, Camilla Parker Bowles. I'd love to be able to meet her and just say, hey, queen, what's shaking? <laughs> <laughs> I, I probably wouldn't quite do that, but uh, I would love to be able to go to Scotland and walk. It'd be fun. That would be fabulous, fabulous. Well, uh, as you know, you who are following our podcast, we have started this 10 questions series and Rob and I have built this camaraderie since the mid 1990s, late 1990s till this day. We have stayed in touch, Rob. When I was uh, in Chicago and, and did quite a bit of media, I would call a friend. I'd say, Rob, help. What do I do about this topic? And he would always give me the two or three topics or talking points that I needed to understand what the arguments were because in media, as some of you may know, you only have a few seconds to make a point. And so you've got to hone your message. But anyway, Rob has been a great resource, great help. I don't say this to make him uncomfortable, but he is a towering intellect. And that's one of the reasons I always go to him for help because he can steer me in the right direction. So I want to put my 10 questions to you today, Rob. You know the context of our podcast, in context, how we understand the Bible and apply it from its context into our context. So tell us a little bit about your world. And and while we could talk about Regent and the university setting, I'm a little more interested in your career prior to that. How did you live out as a believer in the context that you worked on the Hill for members of Congress and speech writing and so forth? Well, first, thanks a lot for having me, Michael. It is just an incredible joy to be with you. And really, our friendship has been one of the great blessings of my life over these past two decades plus. In terms of living out my faith, 
in any sphere of secular life. I think it's a challenge for a committed Christian. In politics, there are specific challenges. In working with or for an office holder or being one yourself, you're presented with the need to be deft in the way you apply your faith and yet uncompromising. Someone once used the term principled compromise, and I like that a lot because it's one thing to be able to compromise on issues that are not particularly related to moral value. If you're voting on a highway bill or you're voting on a a measure for agricultural production or something like that, usually there are ways of finding compromise as to funding or the specifics of public policy. On the other hand, if you're voting for a Supreme Court justice or you're voting to, if you're voting for something related to abortion or issues regarding human sexuality or religious liberty, or certainly dealing with issues of race and so forth, there's not a lot of wiggle room. And that's particularly difficult now, I think, for Christians, because we live in a culture where moral assumptions that even a couple of decades ago were taken for granted no longer are. And in fact, if you make simple declarative statements about right and wrong, you'll be accused of being intolerant or hateful or whatever else. There are also in politics, and a lot of my experience was in politics, working in the House and in the Senate, and then uh, in the uh, George W. Bush administration, and then for seven and a half years with the Family Research Council, which is a public policy, family-friendly organization in Washington, D.C., you're continually confronted by the fact that for Christians, as for non-Christians, in many ways, politics is inherently oppositional. A lot of people don't want to hear that. They want to think, well, those guys should really just try to all get along. And I wish that were the case. But if you have a core set of convictions, whatever they are, they will come into conflict with people who disagree. Christians need to be very careful of depersonalizing and dehumanizing their opponents Mm. and of saying crass and crude things about them. That should not be part of our vocabulary, either verbally or in conduct. Mm. At the same time, planting a flag in the ground, as it were, and not being willing to shift it or move it is going to cause antagonism, however gracious you are. And I I tell my students at Regent that the most gracious man who ever lived was crucified. Now, that doesn't give us a pretext for being obnoxious or hostile or mean-spirited. It does mean that even if we are very loving and very gracious, if we say yes to some things and no to others, there will be people who will be hostile toward us, and we have to be ready if we're going to be in public life to take those attacks. If you're not, then don't get involved in politics. I saw, a, uh, I think it was a Texas congressman, uh, just a little blip this weekend, say, you know, there's times you have to fight. And uh, again, back to your the sensibilities of Christians and, you know, name-calling and vilifying and characterizing. It's so difficult, I think, because our emotions get so high. But we still need men and women of faith who are willing to to joust the dragon, so to speak, and to to fight for policy, but it's a a unique fit and one that you you can't go in thinking it's going to work well. (laughs) It's going to be a very difficult run. Yeah. In politics, um, remember Jesus said, woe unto you when all men speak well of you. 
you will not have that problem in politics. <laughs> you don't have to worry about that woe. <laughs> you don't have to worry about that woe. It comes with the territory. Let's move on on my questions here. Uh, what's been the greatest challenge in your own spiritual journey? That's a, a really great question, and I pondered that as I was thinking about our time together. I think if I were to overarchingly describe one, it would be faith. Um, first, when I was young, deciding what was true, and then second, now as I'm much older, not quite as old as you, but very close, and that's really old, it's a question of actively trusting God and deciding Am I going to day by day take the anxieties and the, the fears that I have and place them in his hands, whether that has to do with something in my personal life or something, you know, you see so many evils in our world and in our time and our country. All of these things have to be matters of actively trusting him. So when I was a young man, I went through years of serious doubt and questioning about our faith. And I remember once between, uh, I think, my freshman and my sophomore years of college, getting so deeply frustrated as I was laboring over these issues. I used to do landscaping and, and yard work. And I remember just starting to jam the shovel into the soil as hard as I could, uh, just to kind of shut my mind off. And I came to a point shortly before my 20th birthday, uh, where I remember where I was. I remember the wallpaper I was looking at. And I made a decision and I thought to myself, look, you know everything you need to know to really make a decision. And I had, was a Christian. I had placed my faith in Christ as a young, at a young age and so forth. But as to my doubts, I realized I could not continue to labor year after year with what if, what if. And there's a point of decision. And I decided based on everything I know, based on my sense that the reality in my life of a presence I can't deny is there. I'm going to follow Jesus and I'm going to believe. And it was as though if I ever had a Pilgrim's Progress experience where the load fell off my back, that was it. And it was, um, it was as though years of anxiety and questioning and unbelief and doubt and worry just fell off my back. And that's one of the reasons why with you, Michael, I, I think we have to come to points of decision in our lives. The first one, of course, being to place our faith in Christ and Christ alone for forgiveness. But after that, I think maybe there is another point where we have to say, Lord, I'm going to follow you, period. I'm just going to, I'm yours, and I'm going to walk with you. I'm not This isn't going to be part of my life. Christ is going to be my life. So for me, that was a huge, huge issue. And now, Many years later, the daily challenge of trusting in God and not carrying burdens he never intended me to carry is an ongoing challenge for me. Yeah. Thirdly, do you have a key verse or favorite book of the Bible and why? Well, one passage that I return to frequently is in Psalm 73. Psalm 73 is one of the songs of the sons of Asaph, and it's the beginning of the third book of the Psalms. But it's really a contemplation on why God allows evil people to prosper, and by extension, why God allows evil broadly to do so well in a fallen world. And the psalmist concludes, and these are the words that I, as I said, I return to frequently, when my soul was embittered, 
When I was pricked in my heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. This Mm. is the psalmist speaking to God. You, the Lord, hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you, and there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. There's a lot in our world that we will not understand, that we do not get. I think that's the theme of the book of Job. Um, God never explains to Job why he does what he does or has allowed Satan to do what he did. He simply says to Job at the end of the book, do you really think you know as much as I do? Mm-hmm. And Job's response is to repent and to come before the Lord humbly. There are things in this world that abrade our sense of justice. And it's our job as followers of Jesus to say, I don't understand why you have allowed this, Lord, but you do. And I know you and I trust you and your character and your plan. So for me, that's been a point of of strength and of um, confidence in my whole approach to not only my personal life, but life in general. Excellent. When you think back, what's been one of the biggest lessons you've learned at this point in your life, in your Christian life? I think sort of what I I just said, realizing Mm -hmm. people often say things like, well, it happened for a reason, or, you know, um, I know the Lord will show me why this happened. He might not. Sometimes God does things or allows things that are incomprehensible to us, and they always will be. And that tension of, you know, humanly speaking, this makes no sense. When I was much younger, one of my good friends died of a cancer uh, that he had gotten through an infection. He had had surgery, had a blood transfusion. The blood was infected, and he died of a cancer that subsequently developed. This is a guy who was sold out to the Lord, walking actively with him, was in ministry. And I've thought of that often. And many, you could relate the same kinds of experiences. Many of us have known these things. Why does a little child die unexpectedly? Um, Friends of ours, their first baby, as soon as he was born, the doctor injected him with some kind of a vaccine or something. It was four times the regular dose. Mm. And apparently the doctor didn't know this and the baby died. There are thousands of instances like this, and we want to say to the Lord, okay, so you allowed this because X, and we come up with reasons that we think make sense, and yet I think, honestly, we could find other reasons why they don't make sense, and humanly speaking, why other alternatives would have made better sense, and that's where, whether it's dealing with the problem of pain or who, you know, I believe in the biblical teaching on election and predestination, coordination. And yet I also affirm what scripture says that whosoever will may come. Mm-hmm. These tensions are resolved in the mind and the plan of God. And recently I've been thinking of something Jay Vernon McGee said years ago, which is underneath the mysteries of God lie the purposes of God. And I cling to that. So for me, that's been a, a relieving and assuring truth. After the Bible, what two or three books have been particularly important or impactful in your life? That's a really hard question because there have been so many. One would be Idols for Destruction by Herbert Schlossberg. Interesting. I love that book. I think you're like the first person I've (laughs) encountered that's actually read that. (laughs) It's It's a profound book written now about 
30 years ago, At I least, guess. yeah, yeah. And it's an analysis of our culture in the context of understanding God's view of human nature and of human society and of government. Chuck Colson said it was one of the few books he had within easy reach in his personal library at huh. his desk. Herb Schlossberg died last year and was just a brilliant analyst of our culture and went deeper than the great majority of commentators do. Losing Our Virtue by David Wells, who's a theologian at Gordon-Conwell Seminary. It was published in 1998, I think, 1999. And it, too, is a great analysis of understanding what the nature of truth is, what the church should be doing. It's a tough book. He's tough on us. And yet there's an awful lot there that I think we can continue to learn from. There's also a secular novel that I read many years ago that has never, uh, it's always stayed with me, and it's called The Plague by Albert Camus, a French existentialist. It's about a plague of the bubonic plague that emerges in the Algerian city of Oran and the response of people to it. Camus was not a Christian, at least at that point in his life, but the subtext of the book is there is a sense of morality and of conscience within every person. And I think that that speaks very resonantly with what the Bible describes as the work of the law that's been written in our hearts. And I found the book very moving and tragic because the central figures in the book did not believe in God, never knew God, never had Christian faith, and yet they acted on their conscience. Hmm. And for us as believers, as we think about evangelism, I think the conscience is a secret weapon. You could talk to even the most hardened agnostic or the most bitter atheist, and overwhelmingly, they would tell you that they love their children and that they care deeply for them, and that if they saw anything happen to them, they would do whatever they could to prevent it. And that's evidence of the work of the law, the intuitive sense of loyalty and affection that God gives parents for their children. That's just one example. And mm-hmm. I think we use that in a society where truth is jettisoned and where saying that there is such a thing as knowable objective truth is seen as a hostile statement, we nonetheless can appeal to the conscience. So those are things, those are some books that have had a big influence on my thinking on my life. Oh, it's funny, if memory serves, Idols for Destruction was the only book he wrote. It was one he and did done. Write it. He, no, he wrote a couple more. Did he? Okay, that. okay. One of them, interestingly, was on the ethics or the morality of uh, Victorian England. And another one he wrote on um, persecution, the persecution of the church. But he did write sparingly. I don't know of any big articles. He wasn't a columnist. He was just a a great thinker. Interesting. What is one thing you'd long for every believer to know, to do, to uh, live accordingly, etc.? It's to think about the meaning of John's phrase in John 1, that Jesus was full of both grace and truth. It seems that we are people of extremes. It's human nature. Sometimes we hear things like, well, it's all grace, or God is love, or, you know, as you and I have talked about before, well, the Jesus I know would never say, mm-hmm. fill in the blank. He is full of grace. His grace is unlimited. It's unmerited. It is for the believer. It is constant. He is also the God of truth. And grace without truth is just sentiment, and it's a pretext, really, for feeling whatever you want to feel or believing what you want to believe. 
On the other hand, if we go too far in the other direction and are graceless in our presentation of truth, we're very Pharisaic and very harsh and very severe. And you and I both know of ministries and individuals who are extremely difficult to deal with because they kind of cast themselves in the role of a biblical prophet and give themselves, therefore, an excuse to proclaim what they think is truth and might even be truth, but do so with a severity and a harshness that really takes away from the love that's inherent in the gospel. I think the church in the United States today, we suffer from one of these two extremes. And too often, frankly, I think it's the former. The emphasis is so much on God's grace that we portray him as a God who is endlessly indulgent. Well, he does love us, cares about us deeply, but he also wants us to be transformed into the image of his son. Mm -hmm. That is a demanding thing. If we really want to walk in his grace, then by his power, we have to actively fight against sin. You can't have one without the other. And whether that means sin in our own lives or sin that takes place through public policy or whatever area, we need to be champions of truth graciously, but without moral compromise. Mm. The greatest disappointment in your context, whether it was ministry, vocation, Christian community, etc.? There are a couple things. Honestly, one of them is I'm not as spiritually disciplined as I would like. I wish I, I memorized Scripture more than I do. I'm in the Word every day, and I love God's Word, and I love teaching God's Word. I get to do that on a professional level. I get paid for teaching the Word of God. I mean, it, it blows me away that that's such a blessing for me. But I need to memorize Scripture more. I'm, there are some other things where I wish I just had um, a greater sense of discipline. Another one is, I, and this goes back to the issue of trusting God, without wanting to sound too much like uh, Jeremiah or Amos or any of the prophets, I do think that we have reached a tipping point in our culture. It not only, I don't think it's going to tip, I think it has tipped. We're in a post-Christian civilization, and many of the things that evangelical believers have taken for granted, I don't think any longer can be. Mm -hmm. And I think it's going to be a very rude awakening to many of our churches, our Christian colleges and universities, our various ministries, when in future years the government comes along and says, you must do X or you will lose your tax exemption, or you must do Y or there will be no more federal funding for your education, whatever else. And the very hostility that some people will portray or will, will provide, whether it be in the media or in popular entertainment or in politics. I remember a couple of years ago, an old friend of mine, Russ Vaught, who's now the director of the Office of Management and Budget, had written a letter for the Wheaton College paper. He was a graduate of Wheaton. And he had said, you know, we have to be, um, apparently there was some controversy there. And he said, we have to be very careful of recognizing that Jesus Christ claims to be the way, the truth, and the life. Islam is not an alternative way to God. And I don't remember all he said, but he presented very clear, simple Christian truth. When he came before the Senate for confirmation, Senator Sanders of Vermont said, how opposed he was to my friend Russ. And he said, um, it's shocking to me that someone like you would even be appointed to a position in the federal government. And, you know, it showed not only a great ignorance of basic Christian teaching, but also somebody who takes a simple stand for the gospel 
that you and I and many of the listeners of this program take for granted could be castigated publicly. He wasn't being anti-Islamic. He wasn't being hateful. He was simply giving a warning to his former college, don't compromise on the truth. And for that, he was publicly pilloried and portrayed as a fanatic, a hater, and whatever else. You magnify that out a thousandfold. And I think for many of us, that could be upcoming. And it concerns me that many of us are going to be blindsided and taken aback. And we have to be more prepared in our knowledge of the truth. And like the sons of Issachar, our understanding of the times. So we will know what to do. Your greatest encouragement in your current context? There are a lot. I get to teach some of the most outstanding young people I have ever met. They're godly, bright, dedicated. They want to make a difference for Christ. They have rigorous minds. They're serious about their walks with God, their knowledge of the word. That makes my heart sing. These, Mm -hmm. and you could say that of many Christian colleges across the country, we're seeing some young people God is raising up who will articulately and thoughtfully and with love stand for and advance the truth in their professions and their vocations and their families. Also, you and I both do some reading in terms of evangelism in the, around the world and what's happening. Even with all the persecution of the church, the gospel is going forward. And there are millions of people coming to Christ every year. That should cause all of us a great deal of joy. We now know that Sub-Saharan Africa and South America, within probably the next 50 years, will be substantially Christian, if not majority Christian. And I mean Bible-believing Christian. It doesn't mean that they're going to get everything right any more than we do or that they that every believer will walk faithfully. But it does mean that there is going to be a substantially greater number of Christians in the, what we now call the developing world or the southern world. And that should give all of us a lot of joy. Let's think about uh, writing your 18-year-old self, Robert Schwarzwalder, a letter. What advice would you give him? That's a, a hard one. I think the first thing I would say to my 18-year-old self is that I need to realize that almost all of the spiritual, emotional, and relational anxiety I was feeling can be put aside. Mm. I was a very, very anxious and intense, introspective young man. and People who knew me often would not say that about me. They would have said, you seem confident, whatever. And it wasn't so much just social anxiety. It was feeling inadequate for a lot of things. And as I said earlier, laboring intensely with issues of doubt. And if I were to look back and able to talk to myself then, I'd say, Rob, you know what you need to know, and you're just fine the way you are. Place your faith in Christ now and put this nonsense aside. The other thing I would tell myself is think through your assumptions. When I was young, I kind of had bought into the notion that unless I became a pastor, I would be violating the will of God because being a pastor was the highest thing anyone could do. And I wish now I would have said, wait a minute, is that really true? Is not the highest thing that I can do, the greatest thing, simply to obey the will of God, whether that means being a stonemason or a missionary or a pilot or a pastor. And I think I would like to have relieved myself of that burden, thinking that if I really wanted to be godly, I had to be in vocational ministry. We know from scripture, you can be godly as a shepherd or as a, you know, whatever, pick your profession as long as it's an honorable one. 
Um, the key thing is, Lord, what do you have for me? What's your calling on my life? Hmm. Okay, finally, what do you want your epitaph to say? Does it have to fit on one tombstone? <laughs> well, I think I have a virtual one or something, you know, that kind of yeah. scrolls. Well, with a name like Schwarzwalder, it's going to have to be a big headstone anyway. Uh, <laughs> for, you know, a big head, big headstone, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Right. Boom, yeah. Well, the two things I would really want are that I was faithful at the cornerstone of the church where I was raised. There was engraved in the stone words from the book of Revelation, Revelation 1-2, for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. And I want to be faithful out of love for him, out of love for people, to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. And I want to have been known as a loving and loyal husband, father, and friend. And if those two things could be said of me, I will, I will be glad and grateful. Well, I think I could say those two things if you're right now. So, you know, Thanks, set your sights higher, bro. No. <laughs> <laughs> You've hit so, your mark already. <laughs> yeah, well, no, no. So much more to be done. A lot more to be done. Rob Schwartzwalder, professor at Regent University, academic, a friend, knowledge base, <laughs> a help to uh, many of us. Thanks for your friendship, your brotherhood, your time, and God bless you. Thank you, Michael. Likewise, right back at you. Michael Easley in Context is fully funded by our listeners. If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation to support our ministry? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is edited, mixed, and mastered by Tim Hull, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Tycho and Blair Masters.